Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. How many of you have been to uh, Hawaii? Uh, how many of you like to go to Hawaii? Uh. <laughs> oh. How many of you know the story of Hawaii? I don't know if we know the full story, but you know the full story of Hawaii? You live there, right? Yeah. Well, I probably heard it at one time or the other. It involves Englishmen with good intentions, but doing awful things. (laughs) (laughs) And Americans and sugar makers and uh, so on and so forth. I, in this book, for the first time, are the details of Captain Cook's demise. Ah. Was it Kaliakala Bay? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been, in, I've been snorkeling oh, in that bay, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh you've been snorkeling there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> after learning how he died, well, I mean, I sort of knew the rough outlines of how he died. You know, the natives attacked him right. after a while. I mean, his men hadn't behaved in the most gracious of ways. No, and no, so, no, on, so. No. so apparently, as an honor, they scalped him. <gasps> with years on, and did other various things, and uh, gave the remains back to the English, thinking that they would let him know it was a, a burial uh, suitable for an English chief. Uh, not received that way. Uh, no, no, I'm sure so. not. <laughs> a little misunderstanding of the local culture. Yes. Yeah. And anyway, there are uh, many other connections, as, as we will see, between the West Coast and here. Will you please welcome the author of a new book, Just Out Today, called Lost Kingdom, Hawaii's Last Queen, the Sugar Kings, and America's First Imperial Adventure. Julia Flynn Siler was on earlier, uh, a couple of years ago. She wrote a wonderful book on the House of Mondavi and what happened to the Mondavi wine empire. And she's been writing on business uh, for many years, including uh, reports on the, uh, the White Castle Sliders and Richard Branson of uh, Virgin Records, Virgin Atlantic, and so forth. Please welcome Julia Flynn Seiler to West Coast Live. How do you do? I love that in your acknowledgments, you say that when you told your husband you had to go on another research trip to Hawaii, he said, okay, with a straight face. <laughs> My husband is a great straight man. Yeah. He, he, and he has let me go on many, many trips over the years, research trips. But he knows I'm in the archives, not on the beach, usually. Well, I mean, and where are the archives in Hawaii? The archives in Hawaii are in downtown Honolulu, and they face the palace where the last queen was imprisoned. So it was quite an evocative place to spend weeks and weeks. Wait a minute. You mean the queen was imprisoned? Who imprisoned her? Why? Tell us a story. (laughs) All right. I'll try to tell you the story. The last queen of Hawaii, her name was Lili Uu Kalani. And her uh, closest friends and relatives called her Liliu. She was born in 1838 in a grass house. However, she was educated by white Christian missionaries, and she ended up speaking five languages, traveling to England. She was a very sophisticated Victorian lady. By the time she finally ascended to the throne after the death of her brother Kalakwa, she faced a dire situation in which the vast majority of the uh, commerce uh, was controlled by a fairly small group of white businessmen. 
and she hoped to bring back some of the powers that her brother had signed away. Uh, and really, uh, she tried to introduce a new constitution, and on a pretext, uh, a group of businessmen called the Committee of Thirteen staged an overthrow, and it was an almost bloodless coup. Uh, but it was it was sh shocking in a way, and and you know Hawaii is one of the most remote places in the world, two thousand miles away from the West Coast, uh, you know, almost two thousand twenty five hundred miles from Japan. And news reports filtered in of what had happened, but uh, by the time those reports got here, she was being portrayed as a barbarian queen, as a savage, as having somehow deserved to be overthrown. Uh, um, and a group of her supporters tried to stage a counter-revolution two years later, and they failed. And she was arrested on um, charges, it's, a, it's an archaic term, but misprision of treason, which meant that she knew of the treason, treasonous activities. And she was uh, brought to Iolani Palace, which is uh, still in the center of Honolulu, and uh, put in front of a military uh, court tribunal, found guilty ultimately, and Sanford Dole, who was then president of the Republic, ended up um, uh, 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 not following through on the different punishments that could have happened to her, but she was kept captive for eight months in a bedroom where she quilted, she stitched a beautiful quilt saying, I am imprisoned, you can go see that now under glass. Um, and she wrote some of the most haunting songs that are still performed today, such as the, uh, the Queen's Prayer, which is really a prayer about forgiveness. She sounds a remarkable person. She's a very remarkable person, and I've, I've felt deeply honored to get to know her. And um, I was lucky enough to meet a man in those archives who had spent years collecting and transcribing letters between members of the royal family, between Liliu and her sisters and her brothers and her husband. Some of these were written in Hawaiian, some of them in code. Some of them were in code, which is really, really fascinating, particularly after the period of the overthrow. She was writing in code because she believed her enemies were reading her letters. They probably were reading her letters. And it was only fairly recently, in the 1970s, that scholars were able to crack that code. What had she used as a key? Um, I believe it was a it was a fairly um, it was a, a system that equated I think numbers with letters and she transposed them and she wrote in Hawaiian too and there weren't that many um, Americans at that point who sp who spoke and wrote fluent Hawaiian. Fascinating. What interested you in the in the story at first? There was I mean there's the the connection with the sugar business, Klaus Spreckels, 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 sugar, uh, and and of course you must have had to follow the money of what was going on in the development here, the conflict between Western business capitalist ideas and and the native ethos. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally what drew me was this tremendous story of loss, this very very sad story. I. I'm a native Californian, and I don't know about you, Sedge, but when I was being educated in our public schools here, I never knew the story of Hawaii or why America got Hawaii. Certainly wasn't in my textbooks that we essentially stole Hawaii. Wasn't in mine either, and I went to public schools here growing up. Uh, when, but when did you sort of become aware of this? What, what happened in, in your own 
awareness, your consciousness about Hawaiian history? Well, uh, let me think about it a little bit. Um, I, I started off backwards. So I started off reading about a 19th century business dynasty based in California, the Spreckles family, uh, and thinking about that family. And they were really very similar to the Mandavi family and that they sued each other and that they built this empire and then they lost their empire. Um, but really the most fascinating part of the Spreckles saga was what happened in Hawaii and why the patriarch of the family, Claus Spreckles, became known as the Sugar King. And he really did dominate the islands for a period of time. He owned the steamship line. He owned the biggest bank. He had uh, been responsible for uh, plowing out uh, taro fields and replanting them with or planting them with um, sugarcane and building these immense irrigation ditches. You can still see them today in Maui, um, which really transformed the natural environment of the islands in a, in a profound way. And I've got to tell you, too, that one of the things that got me interested in this, as well as learning about Klaus Spreckels, was that I was at dinner with a friend of mine several years ago, and I mentioned that I had just read this biography of Spreckles. And I said, you know, the history of Hawaii is really interesting. And my friend said, there is no history. I said, there's no history of Hawaii? And that just made me stubborn. There is a history of Hawaii. And uh, Well, James Michener had been there, fictionally. He had fictionally been there, and he did a pretty darn good job of looking in the archives and writing a novel that had a lot of, of, of truth in it as well. When we were uh, traveling doing shows in the Yukon, uh, one of the things we, we learned, particularly if you listen to the poetry of Robert's service, was that you know it was it talked about the nameless mountains that men toiled for gold in. And yet, if you were a native, all those mountains had names. They weren't it wasn't a nameless landscape. It was just how we chose to see it. And it makes it sound as if our sense of Hawaii is a place of beaches or a place of, you know, in a way like Alaska, a place uh, of extraction. We take things from there. Mm -hmm. uh, very much. And in fact, when I started this project, I was warned by uh, someone at the University of Hawaii that I would meet with resistance for being a white, um, Howley mainlander coming in and writing a book about Hawaiian history. He told me, this person told me the story of a bird, Kolia bird, that uh, flew uh, every year from Alaska to Hawaii and then back. And this bird would come to Alaska and eat all the luscious fruits and grow fat and then come back. And, and the, the story was meant to tell me that, you know, there's been a, a, a long pattern of people taking and not giving back. And my hope with this book, um, and particularly with the very careful research um, that my researcher and I did and the end notes was that other people can build on this history. And I tried to, um, and I'm sure they will. People will retell this story again and again, and I'm hoping that uh, this is, the, uh, this is a, a good place for others to go on and tell it in a different way as well. The, uh, you, you sort of, in, a, in just a couple of sentences uh, early on in the book, get a sense of uh, what Klaus Spreckels, for instance, was leaving. You describe him being this wealthy man uh, living in one of the mansions of, of San Francisco, a foggy San Francisco, cold, dark oil paintings on the walls, heavy curtains, Victorian furniture, and how thrilling it must be. To, like he, it sounded like he really liked to go to Hawaii. 
Oh, my goodness. One of my favorite, favorite images I came across was a, a photograph of Klaus Spreckels arriving in Hawaii, and he's, he's festooned with lei, with these flower garlands around his neck. There must have been a dozen of them. And the look on his face is uh, one of kind of magnificent happiness. Um, it's quite an astonishing photograph, but oddly, the two Hawaiian women, native Hawaiian women standing with him, have very different looks on their faces. And I would love to know the story behind that photograph. I can, I can guess based on the history, but... Wait, how did how did the sugar trade begin in uh, with Hawaii? Well, um, the native Hawaiians or the Polynesians, I should say, who first came across in canoes thousands of years earlier, probably from the Marquesas to uh, the Hawaiian Islands, brought stalks of sugar cane with them, and they had grown sugar cane for millennia. Um, and in fact, Captain Cook's journals and the uh, the other sailors who were there noted that sugarcane was growing. So it was not introduced by white people. It was uh, native to uh, to to the land at that point. Um, however, very early on, uh, the first few decades of the 19th century, uh, there were some enterprising Westerners who thought, "Aha! There is an opportunity here for growing sugarcane." And in Britain, um, remember, the colonies in the Caribbean were vastly profitable for the British Empire growing sugar. And uh, so it was a natural possible cash crop to grow in these islands that to Westerners looking for opportunities, commercial opportunities, the islands, they described them as jungle, as having nothing there. Well, of course, they had um, very intricate aqueducts and taro fields, but the Westerners didn't see that. They saw the opportunity for big, vast Western-style fields of sugarcane. And very rapidly, the, the industry grew. And how was the cane harvested? I mean, was there a, a slave population? No. In the Caribbean, of course, there were slaves that, uh, that harvested the sugarcane. There were not um, slaves in Hawaii. At first, uh, the uh, plantation owners uh, used Hawa native Hawaiians to harvest the cane. And as the, as the plantations grew, they realized they had a labor problem because it's extremely difficult work, backbreaking work, painful, dangerous um, and so they started looking primarily to Asia, to the Philippines and China, to bring in workers. And immigration of these new uh, groups of workers really changed, again, the, uh, what the islands were, um, and even further marginalized the Native Hawaiians. Uh, when uh, we drive north on Highway I-80, there's a, there's a big factory there that said for years, you know, C&H, you know, which was California and Hawaii sugar. Was this really the main source of sugar for the United States? Well, there were two locations for the sugar industry in the United States. But first of all, there was the South. And then there was an emerging California sugar industry. And it started with beet sugar. And Klaus Spreckels was one of the, uh, the largest um, growers of beet sugar in the nation. And um, You know, this... this takes me back to those geography classes of elementary school where you had little symbols of beets and so on and so forth. And, you know, Idaho would have beet sugar and so on and sorghum, you know, and, and all of these things. And to realize, in a way, when we were trying to learn what products came from what states, and they were just kind of names. I mean, you had no idea of, of the stories, the commotion, the chaos, the 
business conniving that went on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Well, and I don't know about you, Sedge, but I just love going places and seeing echoes of the history that were there. Spreckelsville, south of San Francisco, well, that was a beet, it's still, you know, it's beet sugar area. The Carquinez Bridge, CNH Sugar, that plant that you mentioned. The Spreckles Organ in, uh, in San Diego. Um, the Spreckles Organ? Yes, it's a big organ that the family um, donated. It's part of the park system, I think. Beats me, I'm going to have to go down and check it out. Yeah. But uh, the Coronado Hotel was a Spreckle, was owned by the Spreckles. Well, then, of course, the, uh, the Legion of Honor Art Museum uh, was uh, funded by Spreckles Money. Uh, the Spreckles Mansion in, in uh, Pacific Heights, which was... Danielle Steele's, Steele still live in it? That's, that's what I understand. I think she may have moved to France recently, but I, I believe she still owns that home. So sugar was big bucks, big industry, a lot of, a lot of this going on. And in the source of this, of this conflict, uh, it, it came up against the political structure of Hawaii. I mean, how did that sort of morph over time? One of the, again, going back to a photograph, one of the early photographs I, f I saw was of Liliu, the day that she was going to introduce this new constitution in 1893. She's in an open carriage, and footmen wearing white breeches are, uh, are opening, the door, opening the carriage door for her. The constitutional monarchy in, in Hawaii was modeled on Great Britain's, and it was a very, um, it was a society that, that really looked to Britain versus the United States, which I found very, very surprising. And one of the um, geopolitical surprises in the book was that in the 19th century, it wasn't clear where Hawaii was going to land in the geopolitics of that century. Would it become part of Japan? Would it become part of Britain? Would it become part of France? Would it become part of the United States? And one of the reasons that uh, Congress was able to push through um, uh, annexation of the islands was a fear that the Japanese would swoop in and get them ahead of us. As they later did in 1941. Right? Yeah, they, they swooped in there. They did swoop in. Um, I was remembering the, uh, I, I talked with a, a driver once on one of the islands uh, who was you were ferrying people from one place to another and he used to work in the pineapple fields. And I said, what, what do you prefer, working in the pineapple fields or you know, working in the hotel business? And, and he said, he paused a moment, and he said, pineapples don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> so he's saying he preferred pineapples. I think he, I think he was saying that in, in that in that particular way. Or at least that the pineapples didn't talk back. I mean, but the pineapples, I mean, was another kind of a whole other trade going on. So it was a cousin of Sanford Dole, who Sanford Dole was one of the men. As in Dole Pineapple? Well, yes, who set up the first uh, the pineapple plantation. And his cousin Sanford helped uh, orchestrate the coup that toppled the Hawaiian monarchy. What about, what about sort of uh, royal lands that exist in Hawaii? Is there still dispute about uh, lands that were held? And, and I know there's tremendous pressure for development in various places of Hawaii, and also tremendous pressure to conserve open land spaces. Uh, there certainly are. There are Hawaiian homelands that have been set aside. Uh, and there is a, 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 a continuing discussion of what were known and are known as the crown lands. And those were the royal lands that uh, in 1893, around the time of the coup, uh, went from being held essentially in trust by Liliu and the royal family 
uh, and went into the hands of the, uh, the, the new government. So that was 1.5 million acres of crown lands that were, activists would argue, were stolen from the Hawaiian people. And so what about, restitu are there restitution movements uh, similar in the United States uh, to give land uh, back to people from whom it may have been taken? There is a, a very vibrant sovereignty movement, and uh, there have, for decades now there have been effort, legislative efforts to for restitution of some sort. You seen the the film uh, with George Clooney, The Descendants? I have seen The Descendants. I liked it very much, particularly the soundtrack, which I've been listening to over and over with slack key guitars. Gorgeous. I mean, there's there's a story of a family dealing with uh, land holdings how to divide it up, issues of you know, short-term profit, long-term preservation, you know, what to do about it. Uh, that must have resonated with you and what you'd read in this and written in this history. It did resonate with me. The George Clooney character is the descendant of the royal family, um, and he has property uh, that has been in the family for a long time. Um, you know, I think I'm starting to hear a few dissenting voices about that movie, and uh, you know, kind of looking at it through a different lens, which is, you know, George Clooney and that character represents kind of the one percenters in Hawaii. And maybe we should look at it a slightly different way, which is what happened to the 99%, particularly of native Hawaiians and land. And I'm not an expert in that area, but I certainly feel, feel that issue. And I think that that dissenting voice, uh, there's some truth in that. It's worth talking about. Looking back at the people that you've profiled and reported on over time, whether it's the White Castle Empire or the Virgin Empire or the Mondavi Empire or this Sugar Empire and the story of the Queen, I mean, is there any kind of similarity in human behavior, any kind of lessons that, that you can look back and see? Well, I, I think it really goes back to Greek myth and that off, so often brilliance is accompanied. Brilliance and the ability to build something very great is accompanied by um, some tragic flaw that brings it down. And maybe human nature, I don't know. Certainly the Mandavi case, what a brilliant family. And they created what are still today very beautiful wines, um, but really couldn't hold it together. And, uh, and that was a fight over money with the uh, Hawaiian royal family. It's a much deeper, um, more complex story and more significant story on so many different levels. It's a story in some ways of guns, germs, and steel. And when Liliu uh, in 1893 was on the throne, the native population had declined dramatically because of diseases introduced by Westerners. And that was not something obviously that the Mandavis were facing. Um, there was a technology issue with uh, the native Hawaiians um, but I think all of these stories have um, deeper meanings. And for me, the story of Lili'u was particularly poignant and, and also uplifting in some respect because at the end, uh, reading her diaries and letters, it was clear she was able to forgive her enemies. And that was a pretty powerful act to do that. And she was, she was a Christian, and I think that her ability to forgive rose out of that. Um, but it was a very inspiring, uh, yet sad story to me. And what about the villains? Yeah. Who was your favorite villain in this account? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I kind of had imagined going into this four-year research project that 
the white capitalists would be the villains, you know, that uh, maybe Klaus Spreckels would be the villain. But the further I delved into the archives, um, the more I realized that, uh, that there weren't any clear-cut villains, at least in terms of individual characters. I mean, for example, Sanford Dole, who was one of the leaders of the revolution, he loved Hawaii. He loved the natural world. He was exquisitely sensitive to it. He spoke native Hawaiian. He was nursed by a native Hawaiian woman. Um, and uh, he had a great sensitivity towards it, too. Yet he, he uh, carried out which something that I, I don't think you could argue otherwise that was a terrible wrong against the native Hawaiian people. So is he a villain? Well, he's a pretty complex villain if he's a villain. Um, typically Thurston, uh, is, again, one of the people who carried out the revolution is cast as the villain. He's probably the, the most clear-cut villain in the story. Um, but again, you've kind of got, got to admire this guy. I mean, he was at age 14, was leading tours up to the volcano. He learned, he learned the Hawaiian language. He learned to read it. He, you know, he was a very enterprising character as well. And um, Do you think that the division between native and people who have arrived and, and absorbed the place as if it's their, you know, they have that similar attachment, you think that's a, a fair distinction to make? It's a, certainly a distinction that people nowadays make. Um, ooh, that's a deep question, Sedge. I, I would have to think... No, I think of that from time to time. I mean, you know, you know it, it does where you're... I mean, if you become an adoptive mm -hmm. person in a place and you, it, and you adopt its lifeways and you adopt its ethos and you, you know, are there, does that really change your rights as a human being versus those who were just born there? I, I don't know. It's, it's a great question. I, I don't know the answer to it. Well, that'll be our next topic. Uh, when we, <laughs> once again, here on Radio 4, uh, when we continue. Um, it's, a, it's a beautifully written account of really an extraordinary time in, in uh, really the, the history of our, uh, of our Pacific and the connection with Hawaii. And it's helped sort out a lot of that, you know, the idea that Hawaii had a queen, you know, had royalty is, you know, sort of makes it sound... And then it was sort of pulled away. I mean, makes it all sound, uh, you know, if you just go in there and play in the water and the beach, you're not really aware of the human history of that place and the sorrows as well as the joys. Robert Louis Stevenson seemed to have had a good time there. Oh, he was a delightful character to get to know. He would sit in his pajamas and play his flagellette, a little, uh, little flute, and he became uh, friends with his neighbor, who was the beautiful Princess Kailani, who lived at the estate next door. And oh my goodness, again, a photograph of them at a luau with Robert Louis Stevenson, and Liliu was there, uh, King Kalakaua was there. Um, quite a marvelous history. It was amazing the, the number of people who came in and out of Hawaii, including Mark Twain, too. He, he the Sandwich Islands is a book about the Sandwich Islands. Right, quite politically incorrect, some of the things he said about the Sandwich Islands. But uh, Name for what, the Earl of Sandwich? The Earl of Sandwich, again, the British connection. Right. Yeah. And, and yet they drank Chateau Lafitte Rothschild uh, <laughs> there. I mean, it was this mix of of outpost and civilization and, and elegance and, and uh, 
barefootness. I mean, it was a remarkable time. It was a remarkable time. And who would have thought, really? You can see, you can see the China that came uh, from Europe. You can see some of these things at Iolani Palace if you go visit. Uh, yet, yet, I understand the question most people ask is, where was Jack Lord's office from Hawaii Five-0, right? <laughs> that's, that's very true. Or these days, the, the remake of Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. The book is called Lost Kingdom. Hawaii's Last Queen, The Sugar King, and America's First Imperial Adventure by Julia Flynn Seiler. It's in a beautiful turquoise, ocean turquoise color with the bright red of uh, hibiscus lettering on it. Thank you very much for being on West Coast. Thank you. Thank you. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.